a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Okay, I got to warn you, I, I, I'm looking at my rantometer, and the needle has been bouncing around a little bit today. I don't know, maybe it was just a heavy news weekend. There are a lot of different things that I'm going to be sharing with you in today's show, but uh, I also kind of feel like I'm right there on the precipice of a rant. So, you know, if I tip over the edge, please bear with me. My, my goal here isn't just to, you know, hey, invite you along for the ride as I vent my spleen, but holy cow. Some of the stuff that we we are having to to sort through, if uh, I mean, and this is assuming you know that you're one of those people who wants to stay tethered to reality. If you're determined to remain rooted in reality, man, you've got your work cut out for you because there is a wholesale push to invert it. And and I'll I'll just start with one of the more obvious examples. I guess last night on sixty minutes. They did the most sympathetic, gentle puff piece on Ray Epps, who you may remember as the guy who was out there January 5th of 2021 and again on January 6th, cheerleading and encouraging people, we've got to go into the Capitol, not just down to the Capitol, into the Capitol and show them that uh, the people's house belongs to us and blah, blah, blah. I mean, it's this, this is the most amazing thing. And I've only seen a few excerpts. But, you know, the, the official version, okay, the official narrative right now would have us believe, well, Ray Epps is just, uh, he's just a victim of a terrible misunderstanding, a right-wing conspiracy that treats him like he's some kind of a federal operative or federal asset. And, uh, you know, he's had death threats and he's had people that have been really upset with him. Okay, so I saw, I saw a tweet earlier today that I thought really summarized why it is not uh, an irrational or a conspiratorial thing for a person to to question Mr. Epps, and especially if you've seen video of, of what this guy was was inciting. I mean, people called him out on the night of January 5th. They were like, no, fed, 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 because he was talking about we need to go into the Capitol tomorrow. But this uh, this tweeter says, look, you know how I know Ray Epps is a fed? Because they've arrested grandmothers with cancer for simply being at the Capitol on January 6th. It's true. Actually, there is a grandmother from here in Idaho who has been sent to prison. She's, she is, uh, you know, I think Pam Hemphill is, is her name. In the meantime, you have Ray Epps on camera openly orchestrating the worst attack on our democracy since Pearl Harbor, 9-11, and the Holocaust combined in the words of the official narrative. And this guy's the very definition of everything the left says we all are. There he is with his Make America Great Again hat, you know, and all this. But here is Mr. Epps getting late-night TV appearances, op-eds written in his defense by the same people who pushed the official January 6th narrative. Yeah. What kind of sense does that make for anybody who isn't a plant? In fact, this tweeter points out, his only redeeming qualities that he'd been called out for being a fed, and now the left gets to defend him against the right-wing terror mob or whatever we are now. Are we a cult? Are we a mob? Gee, it's hard to keep track. By the way, the, the person who wrote this goes, I know, I'm, I'm 
just trying to come up with a term to encompass the hyperbole when uh, when I use Pearl Harbor and that. You know, this is trying to encompass the hyperbole with which the messaging on January 6th thrives. It was a sarcastic comparison, in other words. January 6th was a parade by comparison, which, by the way, is what a lot of people were actually charged with. They're parading without a permit or parading in the Capitol. Um, it's nuts. And then you see people like Adam Kissinger, who uh, he's, he's a member of Congress, but, uh, but definitely not on the side of freedom or not on the side of the Constitution. Why are we defending Ray Epps, who was at January 6th? Because it exposed the lies and the sickness of people like Representative Thomas Massey, Ted Cruz, and Tucker Carlson, and MGT, or MTG, rather. Sunlight disinfects evil. Yeah, that, that logic works if you've had a lobotomy. So, I, you know, my goal here is not to, not to make sure that, hey, are you on the uh, two minutes hate here for Ray Epps? Look, Ray Epps is whoever he is, but it is undeniable that he was out there urging and inciting and encouraging people not just to go to the Capitol, but to go into the Capitol even the night before January 6th. It's all there on video. It's undeniable. And yet, uh, you know, the FBI says, no, trust us. He's, he's not one of ours. We have no interest. He did nothing wrong. I mean, can, can you see this? You don't, have to, you don't have to be a rocket scientist <laughs> to figure out. He's getting protection <clears throat> from the very people who are pushing the January 6th narrative that this was an insurrection that nearly toppled our government with a bunch of grandmas waving flags who walked calmly into the Capitol after others had, had forced their way in. I don't know, man. I, you know, you can draw your own conclusions. I still think the best reportive, uh, the best investigative reporting, rather, I've seen done on the, the Ray Epps and January 6th events has to be Revolver News. Hands down. They have, they have connected so many dots but to me, the biggest indictment of Ray Epps and the biggest indictment of the January 6th narrative is the fact that the people who are pushing that narrative are covering for Ray and they're portraying him as a victim. So sympathetic. You know, there's, there is no, and it's come out since that time. You know, in spite, we, we don't hear a lot about this in mainstream media sources. Again, it's, it's not so much the big lies they're telling. It's the, the truth that they're omitting in their reporting. Last I heard, the number was over 50 in terms of federal informants, assets, confidential informants who were there participating in all the stuff that went on January 6th. And there was probably much more. There were plainclothes police who could have stopped it, who could have, who could have discouraged people from trying to, to gain entry. But they didn't, which kind of makes it stink all the more like, oh, wow, this, this really was some kind of a setup. So... Anyway, that's, uh, you know, I understand. Not everybody's going to agree with that. Some people may think, well, you're taking a pretty harsh stance here. But we live in a time of almost universal untruth. Anytime I see someone use the words, well, you know, this is a, this is a noted source of misinformation, I just substitute the word truth for misinformation. If it's coming from a source that is carrying water for the powers that be, when they say misinformation, what they are speaking of is truth. And there's, they don't want you to look at it or even consider it because it will undermine their attempts to define reality. You and I are the ones who need to be defining reality, 
We are the ones who need to be making whatever effort it takes to push back against that inversion of reality. I just bring up the whole Ray Epps thing for for the purpose of, you know, this this is one that to, that we need to keep a close eye on. By the way, um, what's happening in our society right now? This this creation of a false reality very closely mirrors Mao's cultural revolution in China. Now, some people get upset about this. Oh, you must be a John Bircher thinking, you know, some kind of a conspiracy going on here. But actually, I'm going to share with you a couple comments here. This is from Lily Tang Williams, who is a survivor of Mao's cultural revolution. And she says, here are some of the revolution's features and tactics. You judge for yourself if these look similar with today's American woke cultural revolution. Number one, Mao started the cultural revolution to purge his political enemies and become a supreme leader to control entire China. His campaign slogan, destroy the four olds, meaning traditional ideas, culture, habits, and customs. Now, we don't see anything like that, do we? Then there was the arbitrary division of society using critical class theory and identity politics, dividing people into oppressors, the five black classes, and the oppressed, the five red classes. Quasi-religious indoctrination of urban youth, the Red Guards, shut down schools for years for them to do class struggles full-time, promote division, hatred, envy, and equity. Ah, we hear that word a lot today, don't we? Also, the toppling down of statues, putting big posters and spray paintings on the walls, riots, looting, violence, law enforcement told to stand down. In Mao's revolution, they changed school or street names, changed words and definitions, censored words, burned relics, temples and churches, demonizing all religions as cults, promoting communism as the sole ideology, and Mao as a godlike leader. They also had struggle sessions, public shaming, and denouncing, self-criticizing, apologizing, thought reform re-education camps for the black classes. Guilty at birth by relationship, by association, past words or deeds, lose jobs if you don't comply, silence is violence. Then family and neighbors turning on each other, children were told parents are not dearer than Mao, urging teens to change their last names to cut ties with their black class families to show loyalty to the revolution, redefining social norms, promoting unisex genderless society, girls dressed like boys and soldiers, confusion, social chaos, banning dating in schools. Press and media were controlled by the CCP and used for propaganda daily, canceling individual merits, silencing dissident voices from all professions, banning books, songs, music, art, and comedies that were not PC, and using mob tactics of fear, intimidation, torture, and violence, no rule of law. Keep in mind, 20 million people died. Many committed suicide, including intellectuals and party officials who supported the regime. Yeah, you see any uh, similarities there? Because I'm seeing them. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Quick shout out here to the sponsors who make this program possible. They include MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, Borelli.com, and tmcpnation.com. I also would encourage you, if you are so inclined, please feel free to subscribe to my show notes. You can go to my website, thebrianhideshow.com. Get yourself signed up. All it takes is an email, and you are good to go. Let's see. There was another article. Oh, yes. This is, since I was talking about uh, Mao's communist revolution and, you know, the cultural revolution that uh, was undertaken in China, 
Um, you know, we don't have to be in absolute lockstep with, well, but I don't see our red guards. Yeah, you do. The red guard today are the people who are taking over state legislatures and standing there chanting and protesting. They're, they're waving rainbow flags. They're rave, waving trans flags. It's just it, same tactics, same dynamic, just slightly different names, slightly different faces. But, uh, but the end result is the same. It's to tear down everything that came before and to replace it with whatever this new utopian vision, which is undeniably communist in its, in its approach. It subverts everyone's rights into the needs of the collective. I mean, it's, I don't know, maybe a science fiction <laughs> reference is, is due. It's the Borg We're looking to assimilate all. Resistance is futile. Well, wokeness did not come on us in one big dramatic event. If it had, people would have thrown it off because we'd have clearly recognized, oh, this is, this is sickness. This is divorced from reality. But instead, it came stealthily and then openly over time, first on cat's feet. Now it's, uh, wow, these sound a lot like combat boots. I've got an article here from uh, The Good Citizen. By the way, if you're, if you're really interested in straight-up truth, this is one of the substacks I would strongly recommend. Um, not only is it very good investigative writing, but uh, there's also a good sense of humor here. But uh, the good citizen does a wonderful job of of showing, giving some very clear pieces of evidence that demonstrate how we have been shifted in our popular culture, in our our just our our public consciousness has shifted. For instance, there's a graphic here: things that they stopped talking about in uh, 2012. And, and it's, uh, let me see if I can pull this up here. Uh, I, can't, I can't get this too enlarged enough that I can, can see it clearly. But uh, replaced with uh, things that they, were st- that they started talking about in 2012 after there were certain things that were not talked about. Um, and and it's, it's so weird. They replaced class war with race war because race war doesn't threaten the profits of, you know, the, uh, the ruling class, the money class, the ones who are too big to fail. And, and from here... The, the good citizen just goes through example after example of how uh, anti-racist racism is being promoted and normalized. And it's, it's very convincing. When you see it all put together in one place, it's like, whoa, that is, that's really something. But when it comes gradually, you know, it, it's, it, well, yeah, well, I remember seeing something or hearing something about that, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very clear effort to make everything racist. The hate industrial complex, which I think is a wonderful term, by the way, of uh, the Southern Poverty Law Center, the Anti-Defamation League, the, the, race, the race Marxism grift, BLM. They have to peddle the currency of racism to give their agenda value. So now racism is everywhere. Math is racist. White inventions are racist. Algebra is racist. Testing is racist. Police are racist. Every institution that wasn't created or founded by and for black people is racist and oppressive and keeps them from recognizing or realizing rather their true, po- pro- true, true potential. And one of the more interesting ones, this is something I just saw in the, the last couple of weeks. You want to see what structural racism looks like? It's an aerial view of Los Angeles showing where all of the Trader Joe's stores are. Okay, well, there's a, there's quite a few of them. Looks like a couple of couple dozen stores scattered around Greater Los Angeles, but wow, South Central. Don't see a whole lot of Trader Joe's in there. 
Actually, I would have to wonder how many, you know, stores are open there, you know, other than than, than liquor stores or, or, you know, basically the big retail stores. When you legalize shoplifting, when you legalize looting, or you start treating looting as, hey, man, this is just a form of reparations. Yeah, it's uh, no way people are going to find it profitable to operate in very high crime areas. Now, supposedly, again, that's that's a you know, that's proof of systemic racism because it couldn't possibly be that the, the corporations or the individuals running these corporations would be looking at these stores and saying, OK, where's the best place that we could put this where we have a chance of doing business, bringing, you know, our value to the community without getting looted into oblivion? See, and, and just by acknowledging this, I'm sure I'm crossing some, you know, horrible line. Anyway, I really recommend it's it's a pretty lengthy article, but I would strongly recommend take a look at the Good Citizens article about uh, about how we have been sold a a racial narrative that does not square with reality. And in fact, anyone who questions what that narrative is 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 likely to be canceled and otherwise, you know, you know you're you're going to be in big trouble. You may you might have heard some of the um Oh, some of the news in the last week about uh, the 80-year-old guy, uh, 84-year-old Andrew Lester in Kansas City, Missouri. Apparently, uh, a young black man came to his door, um, and uh, I've I've heard conflicting reports. Some reports say he rang the doorbell. Others say he actually tried to enter Mr. Lester's home. But either way, either way, Ralph Yarl was shot twice. He survived, but he's uh, he's. You know, he took a bullet through the brain, and he's not doing real great. But, of course, the the press is all focused on, well, this 84-year-old white man shot this poor black kid who was right on the verge of, of curing cancer. And, um, look, I'll, I'll just share with you. Here's, here's, how the, here's how the good citizen put it. In 1939, when Mr.—actually, this is a quote from Joseph Bosch. In 1939, when Mr. Lester was born, Kansas City, Missouri, was almost entirely white. Now, less than 60% of the population is white, and that change has brought with us most, most tremendous consequences. In 2022, Kansas City had the second most violent year in its history, with 167 homicides. Only BLM riot-laden 2020 beat it out with 179 homicides. This is a man besieged on all sides by utterly inhumane savages. He's confused, broken, alone, scared, and under attack. But all they're doing is playing up his race as if, well, you know, he only did this because he hates black people. But Joseph Bosch says, look, I don't care when he shot Ralph Yarl. I don't care why he shot Ralph Yarl. I don't care about the circumstances or details or context or motivations. I understand why he did it because he lived in a very high crime area and he, he very likely was in fear. And, and of course, to, to push this narrative just a little bit further, Don Lemon on CNN interviewed the grandson of Ralph Yarl's shooter. Do you believe your grandfather is racist? Lemon asked. The young man, his last name Ludwig, says, well, I believe he holds racist tendencies and beliefs. Lemon asks, why do you say that? Well, he's just a stock American Christian male. Well, there it is. If you are a stock American Christian male, you can't help it. You are racist. Oh, by the way, uh, Clint Ludwig, I'm looking at his uh, Twitter handle. Let's see. Uh, oh, he's got a bunch of satanic symbols here. I am a human male. Hail Satan. We don't have to listen to the lunatic ravings of this paranoid hippie. Trans rights, abolish prison. Let's see. ACAB. Okay. Loves cops, apparently. BLM. 
hey, this is kind of in keeping with the whole uh, Maoist and Soviet traditions of turning family members or turning youth on family members whose uh, beliefs weren't adequately revolutionary. So you see that here, but it's extended past family to all white Christian males in general. The group Today's Revolution encourages you to impugn. Again, you really need to check out this article. Give yourself some time. It's a fairly lengthy piece, but it uh, it provides some very convincing evidence about uh, what we have been sold and the purposes for which we've been sold it. And my goal here is not to get you wound up and fearful and angry, but to encourage you to reach up and pull that wool from over your eyes and see the truth that they don't want you to see. Seize that truth for yourself and don't ever look back. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I have become a huge fan of Substack, and in part, not just because I have my own Substack, of course, that's Hyde in plain sight, but I really have found that this is one of the few platforms that you can go to to get uncensored, unfiltered, and otherwise, you know, unspun information. And, and, of course, that means that, well, it's very suspect. You know, there are a lot of unpopular views on there. I don't care. I will sift out those views for myself. I will decide which ones are worthy of my time and attention. I don't need some third party imposing itself and saying, well, you know, just, just for safety's sake and to make sure you don't encounter misinformation, you should probably let us decide, you know, what you can and can't see. That's what was going on with most of social media, including Twitter, up until Elon Musk took it. And even still, Twitter still has some some pretty serious issues. But all the other social media platforms, all the preferred, instant, neat ways to share information, whew, they throttle back as much as they can. Anybody who talks a little too much truth or who publishes information that shows just how slanted and how, how utterly concocted the, the official narrative really is. Kind of a scary time. It's, it's a neat time, too, in the sense that that provides opportunity for those of us who want to be truth speakers. But uh, you got to get used to the idea that uh, you're going to be marginalized. You are going to be considered, you know, uh, you're going to be Goldstein and you're going to be the subject of two minutes hate. Especially if you uh, start to attract enough attention that, uh, that people are paying, you know, closer attention to what you're saying than they are to the official narrative. Oh, then they go into full destroy mode. Came across a great article here uh, just uh, over the weekend. This is from Bertine Schaefer. And we've learned a lot of painful lessons since 2020, but Bertine Schaefer reminds us why health emergencies are too important to be left to government agencies. This is from her Substack. She says, I wrote this on March 6, 2020. Back when I thought more testing was what was needed. Ha, good times. I guess it's good to be reminded that I don't always see the whole picture. Anyway, the larger point here still is very true and I think critically important going forward. By the way, this is a mark of, of someone who I think deserves you know, to, uh, a consider- your consideration in terms of their point of view. If they're willing to own a mistake and say, okay, I thought I saw this clearly, but in retrospect, it looks like I didn't call that one quite right. You don't see that kind of introspection. You don't see that kind of humility on the part of the press. 
So Bertine Schaefer on March 6th of 2020 said, we often hear that a centralized state is needed for situations like what we may or may not be facing now. An outbreak of a serious disease that's very contagious and could affect thousands or even millions of people across a nation or even the, the globe. She says the argument goes something like this. A fast, coordinated response is needed in emergencies like this. The private sector is ill-equipped to muster such a response on short notice in response to a crisis. So we need to call in the state and give it whatever power it asks for. As is so often the case in response to such arguments, it is precisely the opposite that is true. She says the CDC's response to COVID-19 rather provides a good illustration of this. As ProPublica reports, the CDC designed a flawed test for COVID-19, then took weeks to figure out a fix so state and local labs could use it. New York still doesn't trust the test's accuracy. And Bertine wrote, because the CDC and FDA control who may create and distribute tests, independent labs were prevented from producing tests to fill the void created by the CDC incompetence. There are other ways to expand the country's testing capacity beyond the CDC and state labs. Hospitals are also able to develop their own tests for diseases like COVID-19 and internally validate their effectiveness with some oversight from the Federal Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. But because the CDC declared the virus a public health emergency, it triggered a set of federal rules that raises the bar for all tests, including those devised by local hospitals. So now hospitals must validate their tests with the FDA, even if they copied the CDC protocol exactly. Hospital lab directors say the FDA validation process is onerous and is wasting precious time when they could be testing in their local community. So to clarify, because COVID-19 was declared to be a public health emergency, more restrictive rules were put in place, making creating tests even more difficult. Now I'm going to skip ahead here. But uh, this, is, this is the point that she's trying to make. Look, whatever the severity of COVID-19 turns out to be, without accurate numbers, we can't possibly know. It is abundantly clear that centralized government power cannot be any part, part of any sensible response to it. The CDC's stranglehold on testing has only served to stifle efforts to get more and better tests out to the people who need them and to prevent us from finding out vital information about this virus in a timely way. The best thing the CDC and FDA could do now would be to get out of the way. Okay, so yeah, she she may have missed the boat on the testing, but at least she admits it. Kudos to her. Man, I, I love people who have the intellectual honesty and humility to say, okay, yep, I missed that one. But she's right. That centralized government power can't be part of a centralized response because the only thing they know is we've got to take more and more and more control which it turns out didn't help them in the least. It didn't stop the virus. It didn't prevent people from getting infected. It, everybody still got it. So why should we pretend that that was the correct answer? But you know there are people who have yet to answer for all the harm that they did who would do it again in a heartbeat if another scary virus or something comes along. That's a problem we're going to have to address at some point. We're going to have to do it sooner than later. By the way, I've got another article here I want to share with you. This is oh, this one just blew my mind. And you may say, well, you're talking about something taking place in Great Britain. It doesn't always stay there. And the, the dynamic that's being described here is, is something that we have to watch very closely because it, this is a story from Rajan Lad. I got this from AmericanThinker.com, a BBC instruction manual for kids to propagandize their parents. Now, maybe you knew Earth Day was this last weekend. 
and the BBC carried a piece titled Earth Day, How to Talk to Your Parents About Climate Change. And it starts by addressing the target, which is underaged readers. You want to go vegan to help the planet, but you're not paying for the shopping. You think trains are better than planes, but your dad books the summer holiday. Young people are some of the world's most powerful climate leaders and want rapid action to tackle the problem. Big changes are difficult, especially when they involve other people. Where do you begin? For this year's Earth Day, we spoke to people who have, had, who have successfully had tricky climate chats at home. Here are their top tips. And then it breaks into three sections, implying that uh, uh, targeting what they imply, rather, are evils of our time. So the first one is how to talk about going meat-free. And it begins by claiming eating less meat is one of the best ways to reduce our impact on the planet, say scientists. Yeah, which scientists? Under, under whose pay? Okay, just, just wondering. The piece introduces us to 17-year-old Ilsa, who's dyed her head bright red, and her parents, Antonia and Sally. Huh. No, no further comment. The BBC claims the family ate meat twice, a, twice or even thrice a day, but when Ilsa was 13, she decided to do more about climate change and read that cutting out meat was a good start. Sally and Antonia were understandably skeptical about the plan initially. They were concerned they weren't getting enough protein and the fact that Ilsa was too young to make that decision, but they still complied with Ilsa's wishes and began with a one-day-a-week trial, which they proceeded to scale up, and after a year, they went totally meat-free. So apparently Ilsa is a part of the UK's Teach the Parent campaign that encourages these conversations between generations. Ilsa advises her fellow youths that even if the first conversation with adults goes badly, they should keep trying. Big lifestyle changes take time. If you bring it up every so often, it shapes people's attitudes in the long term. Then the next section targets traveling, and it starts as follows. How we travel is a major source of carbon emissions, but switching from driving or flying can potentially limit family holidays and cost more. Then they introduce us to Phoebe Hansen, a 21-year-old student who persuaded her family to holiday in the UK instead of flying abroad. Much like Ilsa, the BBC treats Phoebe as an expert. Now, Phoebe recommends using fear tactics and emotional blackmail. Say something like, I'm really scared about my future. These are the reasons I want to do something. Present a solution, not just a problem, Phoebe explains. Give them options for something fun or exciting. Finally, the piece focuses on how to talk about going waste-free. We are introduced to young Becky Little, who convinced her parents, Rob and Ellen, to reduce food waste and think more carefully about what they buy. Becky gives this advice. Be well informed about the things you want your family to start changing so they can see you care and have done some research. Explain why it will make their lives easier or cheaper. Make connections with things they care about. It's important not to go into it expecting them to change their whole lives. Small things can make a difference, Becky explains. Now, the condescending, sanctimonious, and insolent attitude of these petulant children and their assumption of superiority over the very adults who brought them into this world is incredible. What's astounding is that neither the author nor anyone at the BBC's editorial team seems to grasp how ludicrous they appear carrying claims and advice from pompous, arrogant, and self-righteous amateurs. He says this piece is totally, utterly, and completely preposterous. It reads like a parody piece. Yet the publishers seem totally unaware of it. You know, totalitarian regimes have always exploited young children to push their agenda. They know kids are impressionable. They know with some effort they can be brainwashed. But it's kind of crazy to see it happening in first world societies, especially those that we usually associate with freedom or principles of democracy. I've got a link to this story in today's show notes. We'll be back 
with a doozy of an article from Brandon Smith. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Okay, I gotta... I gotta warn you. I'm going to a place that's going to be uncomfortable for some folks. So you might want to consider, you know, opting out. Okay, I've heard enough. Time to move on. But uh, this is the latest article from Brandon Smith from alt-market.us. And, uh, and it's, it's a timely one. All right. The, because, because there have been a couple of high-profile shootings within the last few weeks, you know, we're, we're hearing the mantra, why it's everywhere, it's, it's going on, we've got to do something. It's time that we do something, we must do something, we can't think, we've just got to act. But gun control is the push. We must ban assault weapons, we must take the guns from the people. Brandon Smith's article is titled, It's Inevitable. American patriots need guns because a war is coming. So you've been warned. He's going to be approaching some pretty uncomfortable truths here. And I'm going to share these because I really think these are these are worth consideration. And actually, they, they, they may be more important than we think. Brandon Smith asks, should the actions of a handful of criminals be used as an excuse to take away the rights of millions of innocent people? Any reasonable person would say no, but when it comes to gun-related violence, the standards of logic tend to go out the window. There are many government officials that view each major shooting as a gift. They believe tragedies are political capital, a tool for leveraging away our freedoms. In many cases of mass murder in the U.S., he says, the first inclination of the corporate media and the political left has been to rush to conclusions. They immediately blame conservative political motivations for the attacks while also blaming our Second Amendment rights in general. If the shooter turns out to be anti-conservative or doesn't fit the racial mold, they simply stop reporting the story. The agenda's obvious. It's to paint conservative men as a dangerous monolith plaguing the rest of society. Why do they pursue this particular narrative, though? Well, Brandon says, perhaps because, statistically speaking, conservative and libertarian men are the predominant group keeping authoritarians at bay. The government attacks us because they are afraid of us, and they are afraid of us for a reason. It's not about what we're doing. It's about what we could do if they cross the line into accelerated tyranny, and this is on the verge of happening. We came within a razor's edge of war during the COVID mandates. If Biden had got what he wanted with his vaccine passport executive order, the country would have erupted into conflict. Brandon says many Americans have no clue how close we were. Understand that no country, including the U.S., is immune to rebellion, and such events tend to escalate quickly. Leftists often envision their own rebellion as a sort of modern French Revolution in which the mobs march the streets and rule the day as heads roll in the town square. They believe their righteousness is a shield from harm. But this kind of mob intimidation only works within societies that still respect the rule of law. Leftist insurgencies use a nation's freedoms and laws against them, saying, you can't touch us because your principles prevent you. U.S. patriots have no such delusions. We know that when it comes to corrupt governments, principles and the rule of law go out the window very quickly if their power is legitimately threatened. Leftists can exploit mob actions, invade government buildings, and burn cities to the ground because the government allows them to. 
When we do the same thing, well, how many years has it been since that now that we've heard the uh, word insurrection over a single protest on January 6th of 2021? The strategies of the leftists cannot be our strategies because government protections apply to them and not to us. This double standard is leaving constitutional Americans with few options, and the hypocrisy is getting worse by the day. Brandon Smith says, as I write this, Joe Biden is calling for an assault weapons ban over a shooting perpetrated by a transgender lunatic acting on her political motivations. Now, we used to call that terrorism. Instead, the White House is throwing their full support behind trans activist movements and blaming firearms for the death instead of the shooter's twisted beliefs. Numerous mass murder events have been perpetrated by people indoctrinated into the leftist fold. He says, I would usually be the first to look at the psychological triggers for a shooter rather than pure political motivation. But more and more, he says, it appears that the political left is creating the very monsters we now see targeting specific groups. And in each scenario, the media argues that these tragedies were still caused by conservative policies. For example, November 21st, 2021, Darrell Brooks jumped into his SUV and deliberately drove it through a Christmas parade in Waukesha, Wisconsin, killing six and injuring 60 other people, including children and the elderly. He is cited on numerous social media posts supporting BLM-related arguments and anti-white arguments. Some BLM activists took to social media to defend Brooks' actions and suggest that his act of mass murder was the beginning of a revolution. Now, at first, the media denied any race-related motives or political motives for the attack. When Brooks' comments were made public, they went silent. Suddenly, nobody in the media was talking about the Waukesha massacre anymore. And those that did talk about it argued that it was actually the acquittal of Kyle Rittenhouse a young man who acted in self-defense against an attacking mob that justified the actions of Brooks. Number two, on November 19th, 2022, Anderson Aldrich entered a gay club in Colorado Springs called Club Q and opened fire, killing five and injuring dozens of others. The immediate response by the media and political left was to accuse conservatives of encouraging the crime and encouraging hatred against the LGBT community. Yet when details finally emerged... It became clear the shooter identified as non-binary and had been a regular visitor to the club. Once again, the media went utterly silent and the deaths at Club Q disappeared from the radar. When a mass murder event is not useful for leftists to push their agenda, rather, they no longer care. Then there was the recent mass shooting in Nashville at the Covenant School, a private Christian institution. Audrey Hale, a biological female trans activist, entered the school with a rifle that fires pistol rounds and killed six people, including three children. Hale reportedly left behind a manifesto, which authorities have yet to release. Gee, I wonder why. But going by her social media activity, it is likely she was politically motivated that she was politically motivated by Tennessee's legislation against gender-bending surgeries for children, as well as bans against sexualized drag shows for minors. Leftists and the media have aggressively tried to spin Hale's attack as a gun control issue rather than what it is, political terrorism. And finally, we had the attack on Louisville, Kentucky, in Louisville, Kentucky, at Old National Bank by a man named Connor Sturgeon, an employee of the bank who was about to be laid off, who killed five colleagues while live streaming the incident. Sturgeon has the look that the media likes, tall, young, white man, but not the proper politics. Sturgeon's social media history, including his Reddit posts, indicate he was a rabid leftist. Using pronouns he, him, Sturgeon posted numerous anti-Trump and anti-NRA themes, memes, rather, and rants, as well as pro-COVID lockdown comments. 
there has in fact been a widespread effort by many platforms to scrub his comments from their pages as quickly as possible. In one group chat message, Sturgeon reportedly sent photos that included the statement, they won't listen to words or protest, let's see if they hear this. Now, media discussion on the old bank, old National Bank shooting evaporated within a couple of days, the fastest I think I've ever seen a story get buried. But Brandon Smith says, I could list many other ideologically inclined attacks by verified leftists, but you get the idea. Are there shooters with anti-leftist views? A few. But they don't receive protection from the media and government like leftist attackers do. So beyond the issue of directed attacks, there's also the issue of overall violence in America. The vast majority of violent crime in the U.S. occurs in Democrat-run cities. This is a fact. Data shows 27 of the top 30 most violent cities in America are run by Democrat governments, including cities with the most homicides. 14 of those cities also have Soros-backed prosecutors. This is a trend that's been going on for years. So the problem is not guns, nor is it conservatives. Conservative towns, conservative towns rather, are some of the safest places in America for the exact reason that there are guns everywhere in the hands of law-abiding citizens. What the stats show is a trend that directly relates to a particular ideology, the leftist ideology, and by extension, globalism. Without leftists and leftist policies, crime would plummet in the U.S. The more leftist extremism and globalism spreads, the worse things get from generation to generation. And the inevitable outcome is war. Now, to be sure, there are peaceful means to delay conflict, such as separation or natural di national divorce, rather. This is already happening. Millions of Americans tired of leftist policies, taxes, mandates, bureaucracy, crime, and cultism have left blue cities and blue states, and many millions more who have the means will leave in the near future. There will come a point, however, where leftists and establishment elites will try to stop this separation from continuing. If they let people leave, then they have to admit their ideology is failing and that's not an option for them. They will extort Americans into the society they want. History shows us that when a population is disarmed, that's when the worst atrocities unfold. The Soviet purge of millions of citizens through gun confiscation, then food confiscation, is just one example that people should study before joining any anti-gun bandwagon. Brandon says, you can easily see where this is going. The establishment will try to use force to make us submit to their system, and we will not let them. That's when the shooting starts. If we consider the problem from this perspective, it makes perfect sense that these people are rapidly why these people are chasing after rabbit their gun bans today. Rather, they know a war is about to happen. They know they are about to start one, and they know there's a chance they will lose the fight should Americans remain armed. They're afraid for a reason, he says. They're afraid of losing. This is The Brian Hyde Show.